Uh, we're going to be turning to Mark chapter 14 today as we continue to walk with Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And the title of today's message is, How Will You Be Remembered? How will you be remembered? If you need a Bible this morning, just slide your hand up. We have uh, plenty of Bibles. Our ushers would love to bring one to you. So just put your hand up and they will bring that to you this morning. Brothers and sisters, we, we are entering chapter 14, which means we're in the final uh, five or final three chapters here of the Gospel of Mark. And I pray that uh, for you and for me, this extended time walking through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, has been drawing your hearts closer to Jesus Christ, that, that you were being further transformed into his image, and that your faith has both been uh, encouraged and challenged as you walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as you know, as a church, uh, as our banners say here, we've been following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Uh, what's it, that's what it means to be a disciple. And, and I've hoped that, I hope that you've noticed that uh, through this book, there's been a lot of focus on discipleship in the Gospel of Mark as they follow Jesus through his ministry and as he, he mentors them and disciples them, apprentices them for his glory as he's about to leave them. You know, as Jesus performed miracle after miracle, after he taught with authority wherever he went, and as he then also condemned the false religiosity of Jerusalem in the temple, we have to remember that his disciples were always with him. They were always observing, they were always learning, and they were always training. And so we, as we have this access through the scriptures, we're walking with them, observing Jesus, observing him teach and lead and train us as well. So as much as this book, the Gospel of Mark, is about Jesus, his power, and his glory, it's also heavily focused on discipleship. And so as you think of those 12 disciples, his apostles, Jesus called these 12 haphazard fishermen, tax collectors. One guy was, was kind of a terrorist in his background as well. These are just ordinary men. There's nothing special about them. But then he is also calling other people along with him. Over and over again, we see examples of Jesus calling people and they follow, but following Jesus is not easy. Can I get an amen on that one? It's not easy. Our faith is often futile. We often doubt who Jesus is, but yet how faithful is Jesus amidst our own failings? So as we begin to, to close out the book of Mark, I'm going to ask you this morning by asking you about your legacy. Your legacy as a person, your, your legacy as a father, a mother, a grandfather, grandmother, aunt, uncle, friend, citizen of society, your legacy as a Christian. You know, as a professing follower of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the day that you died and you are buried in the ground, what do you want to be known for? What do you want people to say about you? What do you want your people, your family, to write on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? And even more than that, what do you want the Lord Jesus to say about you? As we turn to chapter 14 this morning, as Jesus is just hours from being arrested, as he's about to be betrayed, as he's about to be killed upon a Roman cross for the sins of the world, Mark highlights in, in chapter 14, verse 1 to 21, that's where we're going to be today, he's going to highlight two people that are within the sphere of influence of Jesus, two people that couldn't be more opposite than one another. One is a woman, one is a man, one of them gets it. And the other one doesn't. One receives the praise of Jesus Christ, and the other one receives his condemnation. One who's going to be remembered to this day as an extravagant worshiper, and one who will always be remembered as a religious imposter. Friends, when it comes to your own life legacy, how do you want to be remembered? Well, let's pray, and then we're going to read the whole text, and we'll jump into the sermon. Lord, we thank you. Oh, thank you for the honor and the privilege just to stand here and open your word and teach. Lord, you know that I am so unable, so weak, and so foolish, but yet you take 
man, and you train us and, and you teach us to then lead others. And Lord, I pray that through myself and through other men that you are raising up in this church, that we would be a church that's all about making disciples. Lord, we, we love that you have called us and commanded us to make disciples. And we know that it's hard. We know that it's challenging. But we know, Lord, that you have a pattern and you have a plan and you have a way. And Lord, we pray that as we open your word this morning before us, that you would speak to us so boldly, so clearly, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would encourage the faint-hearted, that you would pick us up. And where there is rebuke, there needs to be rebuke. Where there is challenge, there needs to be challenge. But help us then to respond in faith and the power of the Holy Spirit to follow you all the more today. So do your work, preach to your people, move me aside and do your work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Mark 14. Mark 14, verses 1 to 21. I'm going to read the whole thing right now, and then we'll get into the sermon. Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, how to arrest Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, They were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went out to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, after, one after another, Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Twelve times. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So we see two legacies here. One, where Jesus is commending the lady, and the other where he is condemning Judas. So when it comes to our legacy, friends, how do you want to be remembered? As Jesus commends this woman and condemns this man, what's going to be your life legacy? Do you want to be remembered as an extravagant worshiper or as a religious imposter? Let's have a look at the first two verses. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, 
lest there be an uproar from the people. So when we think about this, we see Jesus, ever since Jesus came onto the scene, ever since he was born, people have been trying to kill him. When King Herod heard about the prophecies of the birth of the Christ, what did he do? He killed all the baby boys in that region, just trying to get to Jesus. And then as Jesus began his ministry, there was always the religious elite, and they were increasingly trying to arrest him, increasingly trying to trap him. And we see here today, they're they're wanting to ultimately kill him. And all of this is taking place here, we see. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we see that that's approaching here. And and amidst all of that that's going on, we see the fury and the hatred of the chief priests and the scribes, and we see that it's reached its boiling point. And they believe the only way to silence this Jesus was to put him to death. But what Jesus had going for him today, at that time, is that there was massive crowds of Jews from all over the known world in Jerusalem. They flooded Jerusalem every year for the feasts. If you look at the population at that time, normal population of Jerusalem would have been 50,000 people. During the feasts, that would have swelled fivefold, about 250,000 people in the city. And many of those people were known as wild Galileans. Galileans were known as kind of wild people. And so there was always this threat and this danger of an uprising, of some kind of rioting. And so as people are starting to listen to Jesus, he's concerned, they're concerned, the chief priests are concerned about an uprising, right? They said, lest there be an uproar from the people. And so for a bit of a background, again, about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this goes all the way back to the time of Moses and the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt, right? All the way back to Exodus 12, where we remember that the people obeyed the instructions of God to go and take a lamb and to slaughter that lamb and to paint its blood on the doorposts, on the lintel. And in doing so, remember the angel of death passed over their homes, sparing the firstborn sons of the Jews. Exodus 12, 23 to 24. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. That's where we get Passover from. Pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house to strike you. And then verse 24. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And so we see them celebrating that to this day, uh, the day of Christ, but even to this day as well with uh, Jews. Celebrated it every year, and this took place in, in March or April. Now, along with the Passover meal, there was also uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that comes again from Deuteronomy 16.3. You shall not eat no leavened bread with the Passover meal. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. For all the days of your life, you remember the day when you came out of the Lamb. So this was all about remembrance. This was celebrating the salvation of Israel from Egypt. Now, as as we know as Christians, the death of Jesus Christ is so perfectly timed with what they're celebrating here. We're going to talk a lot more about that uh, next week as we focus on the Lord's Supper in uh, the text. But the death of Jesus is perfectly ordained by God, and it's so symbolic with what's going on here, what's about to take place. But Jerusalem, think about it, it's packed with people. People used to have to go and sleep outside. That's why the disciples would go sleep in the garden or go to Bethany. There's no place to sleep in the city. It's packed with people. And so knowing that the chief priests were out to get him, Jesus is keeping a low profile here in verse 3. We see that he's about two miles outside of the city in Bethany. Verse 3, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, we, we don't really know who Simon was, but obviously we believe uh, because of his name that Jesus most likely healed him, that he was a leper that was healed, and he's hosting probably a celebration dinner because of that in his home. Jesus was reclining at table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask 
and poured it over his head. So in light of all the opposition from outside, inside this home, away from the crowds, here we see this woman coming to Jesus in pure, beautiful, extravagant devotion. Friends, she was an extravagant worshiper. And she was to be remembered as such. She was an extravagant worshiper and she gave it all for his glory. So what do I mean by extravagant worshiper? Let's let's just take a little look here at what's going on. First of all, even though Mark doesn't mention this woman's name in the text, uh, the Apostle John, who's also there in, in his own gospel in chapter 12, he reveals that she is none other than Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. Now, if you guys remember these two sisters, Mary and Martha, you would remember that even in in Luke's gospel, chapter 10, Martha was the one who was busy and, and she was distracted by all of her serving while her sister Martha would sit at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. And, and, and Christ's response to both sisters and to Martha's frustrations in Luke 10, 41 to 42, Jesus answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Because Mary, Mary was an example, according to Christ, of getting it right. She got it right, and she's getting it right here again in our scripture at this dinner, right? And so even in John's gospel, it shows that Mary is, or sorry, Martha is busy serving again, but then Mary comes into the presence of Jesus offering this pure devotion, this unbridled adoration, this extravagant worship. It was extravagant. She took this jar, this flask of pure nard, and she pours it over Jesus' head. We may not understand this, but this is an extremely extravagant act of worship. You see, this alabaster flask of pure nard would, would mostly, most likely have been some kind of a family heirloom. I mean, the text says it was very costly. And, and then if you look down to verse uh, 5, you see that the value of this oil would have been about 300 denarii. Anybody have a denarii in their pocket this morning that I could see? No? A denarii was the average pay for a day's labor. You go work one day for your average laborer in Jerusalem, and you would get a denarii. And so we see that this is worth 300 denarii, which means that the value of this oil in this jar would have been equivalent to one year's salary, all in one little jar. And so it's extremely valuable. Just think about, just think about your own salary, the money that you make within a year, and then just think about all of that value being put into one little jar. Now, the alabaster that was used here would have been sourced from Egypt, and the pure nard would have come from an aromatic plant sourced in northern India, both very far away. And this jar would have had a very narrow neck that was just designed to let out just a few drops at a time. But that's not what Mary does here. Mary breaks off the end of that jar, and she pours it, all of it, every last expensive drop upon the head of the Savior of the world. And she wanted to bless her Lord. She believed in him. But then as the people watch her, they are in complete shock. Complete shock. Breaking that neck off, pouring that oil on the head of Christ. Again, this is an extravagant, unabandoned, pure devotion. Right? This, is, this is an act of worship where nothing else matters. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I am going to give this to the Lord. This is rightful, extravagant worship for the everlasting king. Right? In the eyes of the world, this would be crazy. Why would you do something like that? 
It doesn't make sense to the world. But in the heart of a spirit-filled, completely convinced follower of Jesus Christ, this should be nothing less than is expected. Because it's Jesus Christ. It's the king of the universe. The king of glory. Again, she didn't just take a drop or two. She took the whole thing. And she gave it all to Jesus. Now, if you and I were there and we would witness this, we probably would have been in complete shock, shock to know the value and the extravagance of, of Mary's gift to Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. Let's say out of love, somebody in the church is so moved by the glory of God that they go out to the, the ATM in the lobby and they extract their whole year's salary and they come and lay it at the, at the feet of the church to be used by God. We would think that's crazy. We would think that's crazy. A whole year's salary. I know that we're called to be generous as Christians, Right? But this is a little over the top. This is what the people at that table would have been thinking. Mary, what are you doing? You're crazy. But friends, what we're witnessing is not a crazy woman. Not a woman who has lost her mind. But a woman who is willing to lose it all for Jesus Christ. She's not satisfied with just giving a little. She's not worried about what other people think. She's not holding anything back. She gives it all for Jesus. Why? Because he's worth it. He's worthy of all of it. She gets it. It's all about him. It's all about his presence. It's all about his saving grace, his abiding, transforming presence. Nothing gets held back in the heart of this woman. And as I read this, the Holy Spirit even, he presses this deeply into my heart even this morning. I'm led to ask myself, am I anything like this woman? Would others who watch me think that I am an extravagant worshiper? That when it comes to Jesus, I just can't help myself but give everything to him. Is this reflected in how I live? Is this reflective in how I worship? How I make decisions? How I approach his church? Is this reflected in my devotion as revealed through my time, my talent, my treasured? Does the glory of Jesus move me enough to give it all for his glory? You ask yourself that question as well. Friends, Jesus is totally worth it, is he not? We sing that song, is he worthy? And we all reply, he is. He is worthy. So the first question we ask ourselves, will I be remembered as an extravagant worshiper? Giving it all for his glory. Now, like I said, the others at the table would have thought she was crazy, which really leads to the next point. When it comes to your legacy, will you be remembered not as an extravagant worshiper, but rather as a religious imposter, taking it all for your greed? Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, with extreme anger, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, right? A year's wage. And given to the poor. And what do they do to Mary? They scold her. They scold her. At the table of Jesus Christ would have been his famous troop, the disciples, the 12, the 12 apostles, right? These ordinary men. He's, he, he's called out of the world to do extraordinary things. These are the same guys who witnessed every miracle, who heard every heavenly teaching, who witnessed Christ's continual, countercultural, compassionate love towards the downtrodden, towards the blind, towards the sick, towards the unclean, the possessed, the outclassed, the outcast. 
right? They've already been rebuked a few times by Jesus, right? Back in chapter 9 and chapter 10 for being partial, for being unloving, for being harsh, right? Remember, they were trying to chase children away from Jesus. You'd think that by now they would have learned their lesson. But when a woman comes to the king of the universe and offers all that she has for all that he is, what do they do? They get angry, they get worked up, and they scold her. Why would you waste that oil on Jesus? We could have sold it and helped so many other people. What a waste! They didn't get it. They didn't understand. They didn't see that the value of Christ in their midst was worth a million years of denarii. So what's going on with the disciples? Jesus is about to die in two days. Why don't they get it yet? What's going on here? Well, when we look at John's gospel again, he does give us more insight. He reveals that at the center of this indignancy and this scolding is none other than Judas Iscariot. John 12, 4-6. But Judas Iscariot... One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6 gives us the insight to what's going on here. He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Friends, Judas Iscariot, you got to remember, he's one of the followers of Jesus. He's one of the chosen disciples. He's one of the 12 apostles at that time. He is a religious imposter. He's taking it all for his greed. You know, I looked up the top uh, 100 baby names for 2020. And surprise, surprise, yet again, Judas doesn't make the list. Judas Iscariot, under the sovereign and divine hand and oversight of God, he wasn't who the other disciples thought he was. He was an imposter. He was a fraud. He was a thief. And as this Mary comes and anoints Jesus with the most expensive ointment that you could ever own at that time, this would have been killing Judas inside. All he could see trickling down the face of Jesus was not devotion, was not adoration, was not extravagant worship, but rather a wasted opportunity. An opportunity for himself One commentator, R. Kent Hughes, sums it up this way. Judas knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Friends, as Judas was the one in charge of the money bag for Christ's ministry, his love of money was greater than his love for Jesus. As Mary, you know, Mary just loved being close to Jesus, being in his presence, seeking his face. Judas loved to be close to Christ, not out of pure love, but out of pure greed. He wanted the benefits that went along with being with Jesus. That's why he would say, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Judas, the thief, knowing that he would have been the one in charge of selling this oil, knew that as he sold it, he would have skimmed it and put it into his own pocket. Again, his greed was at the center, not the love of Jesus Christ. Judas was a false leader. And there are far too many false leaders to this day. False preachers. Charlatans. There's too many Judases in the Christian world today skimming the proceeds of the Lord for their own benefit. In fact, one of these false teachers out there today was lobbying his people to give thousands of dollars for a new jet 
because his old jet was, well, it was getting old, right? And his justification for the millions it's going to cost for this new jet was so that he and his ministry could take food and supplies to the poor around the world. What a Judas. And again, this plane would be parked at his own landing strip on his multi-million dollar estate, all under the banner of the gospel. It's disgusting. There are too many religious imposters, too many Judases in the pulpit today, taking it all for their greed. But on a more relevant note and, and closer application to us, we also have to be examining ourselves, right? Again, asking, what's our legacy going to be? How do we want to be remembered? Do we want to be an extravagant worshiper or a religious imposter? And in that examination of ourselves through the Spirit, by the Word, we need to look at how we approach the worthiness of Christ versus the love of ourselves. Our love of stuff, our infatuation with the world. Yes, under the sovereign hand of God, for an intended purpose, Judas was an apostle. He was a disciple, but he was also an outright fraud. As one of the 12, he would have had unprecedented access to Jesus, right? Emmanuel, God with us. How much we would have loved to be there and see Jesus, God with us. And then we have Judas with a heart not transformed, a heart of stone. His love for Jesus was never authentic. His purposes of following Jesus were not holy. He was in this thing for himself, for what he could get, for what he could gain. I wonder what Judas was thinking back in chapter 10 when we learned about the rich young ruler. Mark 10, 21, remember? Jesus says to this rich young ruler, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The young ruler does not do that because he loves money. Or in chapter 8, 26, when Jesus says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Was Jesus or was Judas deaf? Could he not hear? And that's, that's exactly what I say is going on with Judas. He couldn't hear. He couldn't see. Remember what Jesus would always say. Let those who have ears hear and those who have eyes see. Jesus, or sorry, Judas didn't have spiritual ears. His eyes were blind. He didn't have spiritually opened eyes. The Holy Spirit had not opened that to him yet, right? He didn't love Jesus. He loved what he could get by being close to Jesus. I believe there are many today who follow Jesus, not like Mary, but who follow Jesus like Judas. They're only in this thing for themselves. They're only in this thing for what they can get. In the moment that it seems that the temporary benefits are gone. Or that their faith just doesn't seem to be working. They end up scolding. They end up flailing. They end up being indignant and they question, what a waste. Friends, it's not all about the benefits. It's about the person. It's about the person. This leads us to our next point. An extravagant worshiper focuses their purpose on his person. Verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone, he defends her. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done what? She has done a beautiful thing for me. And then he reads right into Judas's ridiculous claim of wanting to care for the poor. Verse 7, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. 
but you will not always have me. Do you hear that? He says, you will not always have me. Mary understands that you will not always have me. Right? Mary wasn't concerned with the benefits. Mary wanted Jesus. That's why she gave it all. It wasn't to show off. It was because unlike Judas, Mary's heart was changed. She had eyes to see. She had ears to hear. To see who Jesus really was. He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the King of the universe who came down from heaven to save her and offers her eternal, personal, saving, sanctifying, abiding relationship forever. She gets it. Jesus, knowing that Judas was a betrayer, knowing that he was a thief, knowing he was influencing the disciples, corrects his disciples to leave her alone, to stop the scolding, to quit trying to justify your greedy opportunity. He said, she has done a cologne thing, a beautiful thing, a good thing, a fine thing. So it's not an issue, again, about caring for the poor. It's not that Jesus is saying we don't care for the poor. What he's saying here is it's an issue with their hearts. They weren't treasuring the very presence and person of Jesus. He says, you'll always have the poor, but you will not always have me. Friends, I, I don't know about you, but it took me way too long to get this. Far too long I thought my salvation was about me, what I get, what I receive, that it's about escaping hell, that it's about receiving a salvation to come in some far off heaven that I'm not going to see until I die. Now, all of that is true. But that's not the full gospel. Jesus didn't just die to save us from ourselves. He saved us to himself. So that we would love, cherish, and behold not just the benefits of Christ, but the very person of Christ. You know, one of the books that really helped change my perspective on this was it's called God is the Gospel by John Piper, and in it he writes this. He writes, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there, will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven, it's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. That's a bold statement. But it's true. Judas didn't get this. His heart was not converted, but Mary got it. Even amidst the flurry of, of her sister Martha being so busy, she looks faithful, she looks the part, but Mary would sit at the feet of Jesus, treasuring the very person of Jesus, just to be with him, just to behold him, just to hear from him. And so we ask ourselves, are we in this thing just to get something? Do you believe in Jesus just to receive are you treasuring other things more than Jesus right now? Again, always be looking at the things that you celebrate. Look at the things that you say, the things that are on the tip of your tongue. Look at the, the time that you spend on other things over the things that you should be spending with the Lord. Look at the things that really move your heart and ask yourself, is it Jesus? Is it his presence and his person? Now, I, I know many of us would say, I'm here for the glory of Christ. And that can become Christian lingo. If you truly believe that, that's awesome. We love that. 
It's good. But the true measure is going to be found in your heart affections. It's going to work itself out. It's going to be proved by how you live. And so we ask ourselves, how much time am I sitting at the feet of Jesus? How much time am I seeking the face of Christ? How much time am I spending wanting to hear from him through his word and then going to him in prayer? Do I long for Jesus just for what he gives, or am I savoring his beauty and beholding his glory above all things? Friends, it's time to view your faith not as a must, not as an obligation, not as a privilege, but as a child of God, that you get the face of God. You get his ear. And we can hear his voice through his word. And even more than all of that, we get to be in his loving, abiding, forgiving presence forever and ever and ever. And you know what? That starts right now. It starts today. You don't have to wait for it. Cry out to the Lord today in repentance of sin and faith in Jesus and start seeking his face for who he is. Give yourself to be an extravagant worshiper, giving it all for Jesus, not holding anything back. Focus your purpose on his person. Now Jesus here is going to defend and commend uh, Mary in verses 8 to 9. I want you to put a pin in that right now. We're going to come back to that. We're going to go to verses 12 to 20. It's a larger chunk. We're going to read it and just explain a little bit. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher, Jesus, says, Where is my guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, and listen carefully, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? Twelve times. He said to them, It is the one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread in the dish with me. Back in verse 10, Judas Iscariot, it says, He was one of the twelve. He went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Again, greed. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Friends, if you want to be a religious imposter, focus your purpose on deception. Focus your purpose on pretending, hiding. You see, as the disciples scolded Mary... And as Jesus rebuked them, the 12 of them carried on with all of the religious rituals and the celebrations at hand, right? As the Passover lamb needed to be bought, it needed to be prepared, and as they needed a place to gather together, remember Jesus sovereignly orchestrates all of this, and the disciples follow his orders, now, next week, again, we're going to talk more details about the Passover and its, collection and its connection to the Lord's Supper. But what we need to see here is that at the center of these 12, serving, following, doing all these religious things, at the center of that is still Judas. He continues to help. He continues to serve. He has the money bag, which he is actively pulling his own funds from. He would have been in charge of purchasing the things for the Passover. He was focusing his purpose on remaining concealed. He didn't want to be found out. The privilege was too good. He was reaping a great reward, skimming off the coffers of Christ. His focus was not on the person of Christ. His focus was on deception. 
Friends, hypocrisy always wants to hide itself. Sin never wants to be found out. Unchanged hearts always want to pretend. So we ask ourselves, am I pretending? Am I hiding? Am I deceiving? Am I playing a part? Am I just trying to be a Christian? Listen to the warning in verse 21. Jesus says in light of the religious imposter among them, he says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of them. Right? This is the sovereign plan of God for redemptive history, for Jesus to come, to be betrayed, to be nailed to a cross. That's all under the sovereign hand. of That's his plan. And he uses Judas in that plan. It's written. It's foretold. It's perfect. Then he says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It would have been better if he had not been born. Oh, how I never want that said of me. And I pray that for you as well, that the words of Christ would never be, it's better that you were never born. It stings. It warns. And Jesus is being extremely serious here. The legacy of Judas in the eyes of Christ is one of continual greed. Ongoing, unrepentant sin, perpetual rejection of the very person of Jesus Christ. In the eyes of Jesus, Judas was absolutely worthless. It's better if he wasn't even born. May that not be said of any of us. The beauty is, is that today is always the day of salvation. We are born rebels. We are born imposters. But today is a day of change. Let's stop pretending. And let's start repenting. Let's start seeking the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just his benefits. Not just his salvation, but the person of salvation. The God of the universe, Jesus Christ. You know, if you want to remain a religious imposter... Keep focusing your purpose on deception. Keep hiding. Keep thinking you're okay. But the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, should be calling you. If you are a religious imposter, if your heart is unchanged by Jesus Christ, I pray that the Holy Spirit, by the word, is convicting you to run to Jesus, to repent of your sin, and to trust him, and he will save you and love you forever. So as horrific as Jesus' words would be to hear, Let's go back to verses 8 and 9 to hear what Jesus says about Mary's legacy. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world that's happening today, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I pray that. Our eyes towards Mary, the extravagant worshiper, is pretty high this morning. Our hearts need to aim to be like her, like an extravagant worshiper, giving it all, devoting our whole lives for whose praise? For Christ's praise. She valued the person of Christ more than all the money, all the stuff, all the world could offer. And what does Jesus do? He commends her for it. Her extravagant offering of this expensive oil was regarded by Christ to be the most authentic worship in that moment. It was regarded by him to be a participation in his gospel and a preparation for his death and burial, right? You know, as those disciples often struggled to believe that Jesus was going to die, Mary reveals here that she has full faith in the words of Jesus Christ. He's been revealing this truth so many times already. She believes it. She anoints him for his death and burial. And she has full faith that Jesus is going to die. He's going to rise from the grave for the sins of the world, that he's going to absorb the wrath of God uh, on our behalf, that he would truly die, and that three days later he would truly rise from the grave. Friends, Mary's worship was extravagant. In the eyes of the world, it was crazy. But Jesus deserves nothing less. 
And so you ask yourself, what will your legacy be? How do I want to be remembered? Will you be commended or condemned? Will you be remembered as an extravagant worshiper or a religious imposter? And so may we respond in faith today. Informed by God's word, strengthened by his spirit, and motivated by his grace, convinced of the gospel, turning from our wicked ways, and turning away from greed, turning away from personal gain, and turning towards the face of Jesus Christ, treasuring him, beholding his glory above all, giving it all for his praise, and seeking for him to say that we would follow him faithfully because of what he has done in us. Giving it all for his glory, focusing our purpose on his person, and devoting our lives for his praise. Let's pray. Father, we do turn to your word this morning, and we know that it is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And at times you cut deep, and it hurts, but it's good. Lord, we thank you that you are a spiritual surgeon. You not only find the problem, but you also put us back together again in your gospel. Lord, as we think of these, uh, these two completely opposite people, as we think of Mary, the extravagant worshiper, and Judas, the religious imposter, Lord, there is only one goal. It's to be an extravagant worshiper giving it all for your glory. Lord, I pray that uh, through your word, by your spirit, in, in my heart first, and then in our people as well, that we would see this as a convicting but yet encouraging message. We don't have to be religious imposters. By the power and the grace of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, we can be changed. Our hearts can be renewed if we respond in repentance and faith, trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. And we are freed up now to no longer worship ourselves, but to worship the true and living God, seeking his face for all eternity. We thank you, Lord, that salvation is free, that it was purchased in your blood, and that we can come to the throne of grace boldly, knowing that you have called us and you have adopted us as children so that we can be in your presence, Lord. Help us this week. Help us this very week to be seeking your face, not just the benefits, but who you are. We pray all this. In the name of Christ, amen.